Hello everyone, it's July 13th, 2021. This week, Northrop Grumman signs the Halo contract for Lunar Gateway. We also have Bill Britton from Cal Poly on the show to talk to us about cybersecurity in space. In the growing industry of space, it's a growing concern. Big show this week, let's get to it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 316 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, so we're back. Yeah, yeah, it was a good week off, I gotta say. So Ben Haller in the chat, I believe, as we were starting the show, um, was talking about uh, how uh, Branson uh, made his flight today, and and David, you were watching. I tried to watch, you but attempted. unfortunately, <laughs> the live stream froze up around half a million viewers, and then it was just gone, so I didn't see anything really. Um, oh, okay. But I guess I can watch the replay later. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a news article saying that it was a successful uh, launch and landing, so yeah, it all went well. So somebody in the chat had said um, that it, it set a record for number of people in space. Uh, what's interesting to me is this almost certainly broke the record for highest net worth in space, which is interesting <laughs> because that's going to be broken shortly um, when Bezos goes up. And then once Bezos goes up, like it will be almost literally impossible to break that record uh, mm. for quite a while. Um, you basically will have to have uh, yeah, Bezos in space in order to break the record. <laughs> Elon and the uh, Walmart people, some of that family. I don't know. <laughs> you could just invite them along on a dragon. <laughs> so when does Jeff Bezos go up? Because I know that they were you know, know. neck and neck. Like a week but, or uh... two, right? Like Branson undercut him kind of. But Wally Funk, that's that's that's... As far as I'm concerned, that's what I'm excited to see. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So if there's 10 people in space on the two stations, and then with those four people that went up on this, so that would be a total of 14. Now, is that the yeah. most? Because I thought that, remember we were talking about the, the most crew on station, but maybe it wasn't mm-hmm. that many, but it was quite a few. It was at least like 11 or 12, I, I think. I think I think, I think think it was 13 was the most that were ever okay. uh, on the ISS like at one time. And so, yeah. But now, not to be technical, but it says that the suborbital space plane flew to an altitude um, of 85.9 kilometers. So, mm. is that space? Because that's not even 100 kilometers or not even, I'm pretty sure not even 60 miles, right? Which is the American definition. So I don't think it's yeah. either one of those. Yeah, there was a there was a fun back and forth in Discord this week mm-hmm. about about the Carmen line, and it just I don't I don't think yeah. it it really matters at this point. Like it's it's a good it's a good me- metric, I guess, for hobbyists. But I mean, it really orbit is is what I I really care about. Yeah. That's true, yeah, wow. and that that is the one that I want to see. Like that's like to me, that's what being in space means. Because if not, you're just kind of going up and falling right back down. Is that really in mm-hmm. space, or is that just like you know, like dipping your toes? <laughs> um, it doesn't quite count for me either. Yeah, yeah. the The first uh, Orion or Orion was it Orion's second test flight? They did like an orbit and then boosted into a high orbit to re-enter at high speed, and like. If that would have just been suborbital the whole time, I would have been like, yeah, 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 okay, cool. <laughs> which, which <laughs> I, I recognize is kind of dumb because like, you know, you're coming in at, at, you know, a significant portion of, of the, uh, the orbital or the lunar reentry speed. But I don't know, just, just my own personal biases coming to the, to the top here. <laughs> Blue Origin's Twitter account certainly doesn't consider uh, 80 miles or whatever to be the, the the McDowell line to be the edge of space. Oh, yeah. Right there on the, yeah, the tweet is, is from yep. <laughs> Blue Origin. For 96% of the world's population, space begins 100 kilometers and up internationally. <laughs> so they had to post that. 
I loved I loved that their infographic had like, you know, all their stuff was nice and in blue and then all the like limitations of Blue Shepherd or New Shepherd was in red. But yeah. one of those limitations was that it was like, you know, a high altitude airplane, essentially it said. <laughs> like, come on, it's a it's a space plane. That's that should not be a negative, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's you know, we funny. talked about which would be the the funner kind of thing to go on and I mm-hmm. I, I would only pick uh New Shepherd just because, you know, I don't want to go on a roller coaster, but like most people, I think uh, I had seen some uh, some uh, Twitter mutuals that were, you know, uh, tweeting about uh, polls and things uh, had some polls about like, you know, which of these two would you rather fly on? Most people, uh, I think, uh, would rather fly on the, uh, you know, the roller coaster. Man, this this is a real uh, attack ad here. Attack tweet. Yeah, they call it a high altitude airplane. They say that it's got airplane sized windows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man it, this is this is petty yeah that that is most of the responses we're basically just saying like no this does not look professional <laughs> to be honest it's, it's, it's the kind of thing i would expect out of elon musk actually but uh yeah just not formatted as well So, yeah, in the news, uh, Northrop Grumman signs Halo contract. So they got the contract to build uh, the Lunar Gateway, the Habitation and Logistics. Outpost. Outpost, yeah, the the Habitation and Logistics Outpost. So what led up to this, I guess, is what... uh, you know, we want to know. Yeah, I mean, hmm. it's less what what led up to it because you know the entire Artemis program led up to it. Um, well, I mean, but their selection specifically. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't even think the selection was was super competitive, and honestly, I didn't even really look into the the competition. But um, the the contract is for um, construction plus some other stuff. Get to that in a hot second. The contract is for um, $935 million. And um, the PPE, the power and propulsion element, uh, was already um, awarded to Maxar, uh, who used to be SSL. I think a couple of other names in there as well. Um, <laughs> but Maxar is already constructing it as far as I know. And so the, the contract uh, not only includes construction, but it also includes integration with the PPE um, and post-integration testing. The post-integration testing is going to be less intensive uh, than you might assume. Uh, if you remember last year, NASA announced uh, the decision to launch Halo and PPE in one launch uh, rather right. than the original plan which was to fly them both to uh, the moon separately and then uh, uh, rendezvous and dock in a near rectilinear halo orbit. Um, and so now the, the integration isn't going to happen in space. It'll happen on the ground, but it won't happen in a, in a lab, like a, an integration facility. It'll actually happen... Well, it will be at an integration facility, but not at a testing facility. It'll actually happen at the launch site. Um, so they're not going to be doing... Uh, from my understanding, they're not going to be doing uh, uh, vacuum thermal testing after integration and all that. It'll they'll integrate them and, mm-hmm. and run some uh, you know uh, data tests. I'm I'm assuming is basically what it's going to come down to. Um, but that's okay because you know they were designed to dock around the moon when you wouldn't be able to do that testing on the ground anyway. I think it's really interesting. So like. I'm I'm a big gateway fan, right? Just because it's a space station around the moon, like on sure. a visceral level, that's that's so cool. Um, but as we're seeing this thing develop, it's it's kind of getting smaller and smaller and less and less significant. The fact that the first or even the first couple 
uh, who knows, of uh, Orion's will probably wind up docking directly to uh, HLS and then going to the surface without ever uh, meeting up with uh, Gateway. Um, so that's kind of a, a scale reduction, but also like the, the actual, you know, volume that this thing is going to inhabit seems to be going down all the time. They're going to fly it out there with just two elements. Uh, and then, you know, maybe kind of sort of at some point in the future, um, some international modules might get docked to it, but it's, it's not going to be continuously, uh, inhabited for, you know, the foreseeable future. And, um, one of the things that kind of just chipped away at this a little bit for me, and I don't, I don't know if this is a legitimate, uh, reaction to have. Um, but did you know that these two elements, um, Halo and PPE are not going to dock directly to each other. They're going to need uh, an adapter between the two. It's called the IEA, the Inner Element Adapter. Um, presumably, uh, Northrop Grumman is building it. I- I'm not sure. I-, I wasn't able to find any specifications or plans or artist renderings, but it, it will be a separate piece of equipment uh, that will uh, allow these two to dock. And, you know, by the way, we can take this to a little... Uh, a little further off uh, the trail and talk a little bit about um, a, a docking adapter for HLS. Um, and, and this one makes a little more sense. Basically, HLS was originally going to have the active docking port and uh, Gateway was going to have a passive docking port, but they decided to let the HLS spec include a passive docking port to save mass. Uh, and for that, you would need uh, an additional docking adapter. Uh, it kind of reminds me of IDA, right? The international docking adapter. But yeah, it's like, why, why are you building a thing if you have to, you know, put all these, you know, hardware, big box, orange hardware store docking adapters on every single port just in order to use them? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm becoming more and more jaded as the days go on. Um, but who knows? Uh, as, uh, spaceship, starship, starship is, I'm assuming gonna have active docking ports, so they, they might have, uh, nixed a, an HLS adapter for the time being. So back to Halo, um, Talisalenia Spas Italy has been contracted to do the construction of the pressure hull. Um, it should be, uh, com- the construction should be complete by the end of 2021, and then they're gonna do all the, you know, all the testing and everything that you can imagine, uh, and it should be delivered to Northrop Grumman uh, next fall. Um, I, I guess the amount of testing that's going to happen, we can infer, uh, will change the, our, our inference should change drastically depending on whether they're going to ship it by airplane or by boat. And the, the pressure hull itself is seven meters long. Uh, halo as a whole, when it's finished will be nine meters long. Then you add the, um, the IEA, the inner element adapter, and then, um, the PPE, and this is going to be a big stack to fit inside of a single fairing. And, but you know, uh, whenever we see, uh, payloads inside of a Falcon Heavy payload or, you know, a Falcon 9 payload, they they don't take up much space. Like these, these fairings really have a, a lot of vertical room in them. <laughs> Usually the, the limiting factor is the diameter. Uh, Halo is, is narrower than PPE if only for the fact that Halo is, uh, cylindrical and PPE is, uh, rectangular cubic or, uh, rectangular 
prism shaped it's shaped like a rectangular prism um, it's basically a cube uh, but i can be pedantic um, and so you know just the fact that it's got corners makes it uh, a, a larger diameter but uh, halo is uh, basically uh, the size of cygnus with you know docking ports on the sides uh, it's you know it's it's a it's a familiar shape uh, and, and form factor <laughs> to me. Uh, it, it looks familiar and nice. And I, I from what I understand, that's why Talos Alenia Spas uh, is going to be able to construct it by the end of 2021 is because they've already built uh, those Cygnus holes, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a nice little uh, use. It, th- this is the kind of synergy that we want um, commercial space to be able to pull off, right? So anyway, uh, kind of the the... The keystone here for this, uh, for this news article is PPE and Halo, uh, are currently planned to launch no earlier than November 2024. Uh, that's, I think, six months after their original NET date, but, you know, no earlier than is not contradicted by a later <laughs> no earlier than. Mm. Uh, so I, I can't wait to see Gateway, uh, around the moon. I, I think it'll be really cool for the, uh, for the child space fan in me. <laughs> for the general public, I would think too, at least I hope, because this is, you know, it kind of harkens back to the Apollo days and, you know, mm-hmm. there's just like something about that that probably excites people more than most of what goes on in space these days. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because I think that you should be excited, but you know. Yeah. You know, like if I can allow, if I can be allowed to be cynical for a second longer, I'm really not looking forward <laughs> to, um, you know, the first Artemis missions that actually do dock with the gateway and people like, I'm just expecting all these questions like, wait, we have a space station on the moon. When did that happen? How big is it? Can we take the space station uh, and go to Mars? Why didn't we go to the yeah. space station before? Like, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I'm sure the first thing they'll say is like, well, they can go to this space station, but not to the moon itself, you know, or at least up until that happens. Um, so it's just because people don't follow, you know, space news, uh, that closely, but yeah. And, and Artemis is not as big as, as Apollo, like, you know, Apollo mm-hmm. not only had all of the excitement leading up to it of Mercury and Gemini, but like, you know, it's coming straight off of the, off of the Cold War. And like, there, like the entire nation was focused on it, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that just isn't going to happen with Artemis, even once, you know, we see the first boots on the moon. Like, it's just, it's not going to be the same. Maybe, maybe it's just a lack of T-birds and old fashions, but. I mean, maybe, yeah, perhaps. But I think that maybe people will be pretty excited once that happens. But yeah, you're going to have to see boots on the moon. I think once that happens, then, you know, like people will pay attention again. Um, and it'll be something that everyone's talking about. And then probably just like back in the 60s, they'll get bored and not pay attention anymore. <laughs> it was like, it was like, I, th- I think it was like after two missions, right? The viewer numbers just went way down. Pretty much two missions was all the us could handle and we went back to 13 tiki in bars particular and, at least <laughs> tiki bars tiki bars and and mowing the lawn and uh in polo shirts so let's do three short and sweets as usual dennis what's the first one first up ska endangered by mega constellations 
The Square Kilometer Array, also known as SCA for 90s third wave music aficionados, has entered its construction phase while actively dealing with mega constellation interference. The satellites operating between 350 MHz and 13.5 GHz are within the SCA midband, and while radio astronomy has priority at particular frequencies, telescope operators are in technical discussions with space companies looking to mitigate the interference. While Starlink and OneWeb are estimated to contribute to 4% loss of data, radio astronomers are worried about other mega constellations coming online and adding to that level of interference. And then next, Chinese spacewalk. So after three Chinese astronauts arrived at the Tianhe on Shenzhou 12 last month, two of the astronauts performed an EVA on July 3rd. Liu Boming was first out of the hatch, followed by Tang Hongbo. They were supported by Nia Haisheng, who operated a robotic arm from inside the station. The spacewalkers worked inside the new Feitian suits for nearly seven hours, inspecting the station's exterior and installing equipment for future missions. This was China's second EVA, though it could easily be considered the first operational EVA. The first was 13 years ago and was operated out of Shenzhou 7 and lasted only 22 minutes. And finally, JWST is one step closer. NASA and Ariane Spas have concluded their review of the Ariane 5 vehicle and announced that it is suitable to fly JWST. The telescope, however, might wind up launching with a different name. James Webb, the administrator, not the telescope, oversaw discriminatory practices against LGBTQ employees during his tenure in the 60s, as well as his time at the U.S. State Department. NASA historians are now conducting a review to see how much of a role James Webb played in such discrimination. While this action may be coming a little late, it is still good to see accusations being taken seriously. We recommend Henrietta Leavitt Space Telescope, and we anticipate a delightful swan logo. Welcome to the interview. Uh, today we have Bill Britton. Uh, he's the director of the California Cybersecurity Institute at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Uh, welcome, Bill. How you doing? Thank you. Uh, good morning. I'm doing awesome. California, uh, we're supposed to get up to 108 today, so the pool is calling my name. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's how to spend a nice. Sunday. Okay, so c- could you give us a, a quick intro to, to who you are and what CCI is and, and what you do? Sure. Uh, so I actually have a couple of hats at the university. Uh, the one that keeps me busy uh, 24-7 is as the chief information officer or CIO at the university. In that role, I'm really responsible for all the technology and how it's used at the campus. There's a side set to all that technology, which, of course, is the cybersecurity side. And that's the reason I originally came to the university, was to run the Cybersecurity Institute uh, and really connect it to the community at large, as well as making an, an opportunity that students can come and participate in. So if I may, I'll just jump into what is the CCI or California Cybersecurity Institute. We'll move mm. from there. Does that sound well, good? If you don't mind, could you tell us what you were doing before this? Like like you said, you came here specifically to run that. So I'd love to hear what, what you were coming from. So I am a jack of all trades. and I'm not really sure if I mastered any, but we'll just we'll <laughs> let your audience determine that one. Um, So I actually had a 20-year Air Force career uh, where I did uh, 10 years of operational flying. And then I did 10 years of uh, high-end satellite work, also worked in the intelligence career field. It's really kind of funny because I talked to people about the era that I was in was when um, most of the computers were very, very large. And, you know, they're now micro-sized and fit your hand and you, you know, call your wife on them. 
Um, it's interesting because at the time, most of the computers, the, the internet connectivity or the, you know, closed network that it was, you ran all of that out of your shop. You, you ran all that out of your office. And so there was no J6, no CIO, none of these roles. So we pretty much started off where the operations team built all the stuff that you used and connected it. So I've seen a lot of that transition over time. And then, uh, when I retired from the military, I went to work as a, uh, defense contractor, and uh, I did everything from sales all the way up to before I came to Poly. I was running a small company that was purchased or acquired by another company. Um, in that, uh, we got to work with all the three-letter agencies, all the different um, DOD entities, all around IT infrastructure, cyber, intel, all these things that I'd worked throughout my career. And, and the most amazing part was that each time I changed companies, it went to a different, more niche-oriented size and shape. And so uh, I've seen a lot of this progression, transition in uh, digital uh, over time and how it's been used, in, particularly in the cyber arena. So um, I'm running this small company. Um, it was called Sparta. Very unique company. I had about 250 certified ethical hackers that worked for me. Uh, very interesting work that we did. And we were purchased by a larger company that came in and they put me in strategy. And uh, the company uh, CEO was uh, asked if he had uh, someone that he could give to Cal Poly and help stand up their cyber. And he said, yeah, I, I'll give you a bill. And two days later, he told me that we, I was going out to Cal Poly. I had to look it up. Uh, you know, I'm an East Coaster, didn't know where it was. And, mm. So I looked it up and said, wow, this is interesting. So I came out here actually to stand up the cybersecurity then center. Um, I think I was out here six months and the president of the university goes, hey, do you know anything about IT? And I went, well, yeah, I kind of. And so he asked me to be the interim CIO and kind of figure out, you know, what was really going on with their IT infrastructure and where they were at. And then um, after about another four months, he said, well, we, we want to make it permanent. So let's see, let's, we're going to have to do a big search. And so, um, if you'll, you know, volunteer, put your name in, uh, we'll see what happens. And I was selected. So I started all over again. So it, it's been kind of fun. And now that was, uh, almost, uh, five and a half years ago. And, uh, we've been on quite the journey since. I, I love Jack of all trades. Um, so that the <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Um, and, uh, I, I'm an Air Force brat, so I kind of... Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, so awesome. I identify with that. Well, you're going to hear me say repeatedly throughout this that jack-of-all-trades, there's a new term for it, and there's new companies associated with it, and that's kind of what our mission and message is, is that a jack-of-all-trades is more necessary today than ever. And not not just more necessary than ever. I would argue that like cross-disciplinary... Like it's, it's always been uh, sort of a fundamental uh, lacking that... Uh, humanity uh, yep. has had we we just we don't we, we focus too closely on one thing and i don't know if it's maybe just the the modern world does that or you know if, if historically that's been true i guess you know we think of people like um uh geez what's his name the the italian uh leonardo da vinci leonardo da vinci there you go like he, you know he was he was yeah, polymaths in, I, incredibly I multi that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's very true from my perspective. So I'm, 
excited to hear your professional perspective on it. Yeah. This kind of leads us into something that we uh, we walked into now. So remember, I came from the commercial world, and uh, so I'm a really non-traditional CIO at a university, which is one thing. The second thing is, you know, I came out of a world where we're fighting, fighting to find people to work in cyber. You know, outbidding another company for an employee, that is a very typical situation. And so we, we know um, that there's just not enough cybersecurity experts to go around. And it, what's interesting is coming to, this, to the university and um, we made a decision to move to cloud. So we're an all-in university in the AWS cloud. We saw the same problem set with employees who understood cloud. And then working with students and working in the Cyber Institute, I started to see that there was this huge correlation. And it's really kind of what we looked at with space as well. And um, I was shook by how much overlap there is in the same necessity areas. So the way that I look at it, and I actually, you know, it evolved in, in presentation into a lecture, into just kind of a philosophy now. And we've actually structured our cyber institute around these three elements. But I believe that the current world that we work in and the, the employees that we have and are looking for really need three basic competencies to be successful. The first one is a digital literacy, uh, understanding how the digital world works, how it's connected, why certain decisions are so bad or are so good, you know, all, all those things around digital. Now, um, what's interesting is kind of how this came about. Uh, I used to sit and give, try to work with, um, people of my age who don't understand uh, cyber at all. And I would ask them a simple question, which is, you know, do, do you have a house? And, and you would respond, yes, or I have an apartment. So we're, we're going to test this out. Do you have a house or a home that you own? Oh. So this is where you respond. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, good. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Now you're online. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. You have a home. Now, do, do you have door locks? And window locks? Uh, I mean, technically, yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Do you use them? Uh, yes. Good answer. Because, you know, there are people who say no. And I'll say, give me your address because <laughs> I'd like to come visit you. But um, uh, so the answer is yes. And, and so when I work with them, I say, well, what's the difference between your home and your computer? And they go, well, it's a box. I said, yeah, but it's a box that you put all this information mm -hmm. in that, oh, by the way, is the mm -hmm. same information in your house. Yeah. And they start to have this, ah, oh, you, you did it. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you heard yourself, but you went, hmm, yeah, all right, I got that. That's digital literacy. That's understanding that how we correlate things in this digital world is different and how we look at it. So that's just really kind of the beginning of it. So what we've seen is, is we can increase the amount of digital literacy people have, the connectivity between things. Uh, you begin to look at things differently. So when you look at space um, and you think about it, the world of space that I worked in was analog, heavy analog. You know, it, it was relays and switches and uh, hardwiring. And it was um, a, a circuit that heated up and you had to keep it, you know, cool. That's all changed. That's all digital now. So, so that entire world has become digital. Now, the outcome of digital is, is that digital increases the amount of information you have available to you. So you're thinking, OK, give me an example of what that means. So if we put a satellite up in orbit and we're sending messages to it digitally back and forth, imagine how many components of that messaging is now digitally able to be analyzed. The time it takes, the perturbation of weather or the perturbation of altitude, uh, the perturbation of the platform. I mean, all these things now become measurable. 
they're all available to you to look at. And from that, you begin to make assertions and you can, you can look at things going on around that platform or around your sending or around the area that you're using and make a whole amounts of new assessments and, and visualizations and all these other things. And so the amount of data that we're amassing because of the digital connectivity is humongous. So how do you, how do you address all that? I mean, how do you get to all that? You know, in the old days, again, we put it in this big cray and you'd begin to parse it one item at a time. Well, you know, now we're in the, we're in the time of cloud and with the cloud, it's no longer the art of the possible. It's the art of the knowledge, meaning that the cloud allows you to do so many different things. You just have to know how to use the cloud to be it. So I'd say the second competency that we're seeing is this cloud literacy. So you start with the digital literacy and understanding how it all connects, then you move to the cloud literacy. And what you're now able to do is you're able to amass massive amounts of data and start parsing it off and looking at it, running, rerunning. Um, as an example of the cloud literacy, we have a project, uh, we have a program at the university where we do acceptance for all students. Um, last year, we had 65,000 applicants. Now, that used to be done manually originally. So you, you can imagine how long that would take to review all of those records. And then they built an algorithm that ran on a, on a, a server. That algorithm uh, originally in the server and the over 225 perturbations to that algorithm used to take about three weeks to do. Now, we modified the algorithm. We, we took out some of the older code that was associated, but we put it into a cloud. And by putting it into a cloud, we cut the time down from three weeks to 15 minutes. So you, you can see that, you know, massive amounts of data now being run in minutes, not hours or days. So, so again, this digital leads to this understanding that we can run all sorts of data simultaneously. Now, it's interesting. So you have the digital literacy, you have the cloud literacy, which now increases the need for understanding cyber literacy understanding how to protect those first two things that you've done and how they all correlate to each other. So I don't, I don't care if it's space. I don't care if you're running a business. Those three competencies are pretty much needed in everything you do future. Now, when we started looking at that and how it correlates to space, we had a huge eye opening in that there's, you know, the, the historical space jobs were around engineering, rocket science, astrophysics, you know, high-end engineering. And what we're seeing is this heavy reliance on the digital cloud cyber worlds. And we're not really preparing people for that. We're, we're still going down the traditional lines of preparing a rocket scientist or a, a chief engineer. And these other competencies are not necessarily added in. Yeah, that, that was one of the one of the questions that I was thinking of is like, um, CCI uh, on your website, you talk about how there's, you know, this lack of, uh, of cybersecurity folks. And, and you just said that, yeah, they you know, companies are poaching them from each other all the time. But I, I guess my experience is that there are a lot of IT folks. What do, do you agree that there are a lot of IT folks and which one of those competencies are they missing that makes them an IT person and not a cybersecurity person? Is it just that last layer of, of understanding? Uh, of having that cyber literacy? No, I, it's interesting. I, uh, it's pieces, parts, but it goes back to a point that you were making um, earlier, and, and your assessment is absolutely right. We do it even worse in IT. We specialize. There's a tendency to say, I need a network specialist, and so someone becomes a network specialist, and that's what they do for the rest of their lives. Nothing wrong with that, but that really has what's created this gap. So right now, um, there's a, a database for cybersecurity experts. 
It's a work type. And they're a shortage of about 465,000 cyber specialists. Now, that workforce shortage, that number does not include the whole area of space because space is just now beginning. That is the commercial space. And some government space agencies are just looking at how the how the heck do we add this in? What role do they have? How do they fit in? Because in a space side, it's not just the IT side. It's also your mission side. So now it's it's just it's adding even more need. And, and I think to be successful, um, the IT person, whomever that moves to that cyber world, does need to understand all of those competencies or at least be cognizant of how they work within the perspective of uh, cyber and interactiveness. So, um, you know, the, the key for us is like if you design a spacecraft, you know, there's several phases to it. There's a launch phase and then there's an orbit phase. And in both the, the launch phase and the orbit phase, you have to talk to the platform some way, shape, or form. That's a digital experience. And so does that experience need to be protected? Let's say that you're uploading commands and, and you have no uh, encryption and you're uploading commands and somebody else figures it out and uploads other commands and takes it over. So you paid for the launch and now they get to run their platform for you. That's a very evocative uh, you know, scenario. Um, how possible is something like that to happen? I'm just curious because that I never thought about that. So great question. Um, and, and we... Before we jumped into uh, really kind of transitioning to cyber and space, we went to De uh, Black Hat DEF CON. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Or if not, I can explain what that is. Somewhat familiar. I, I, I mean, I know it. Yeah, I feel like Def at Con least our listeners movies. are going to recognize it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, mm. so Black Hat and DEF CON is where really all of the major hackers go. Uh, it's held in Las Vegas on an annual basis. Uh, Jeff Moss started the format, and it's really an opportunity for them to go not just talk, because hackers don't like really talking, they like doing. And so they've created different villages, and the different villages uh, present like a Tesla and how to hack on the Tesla, or can you hack on a Tesla? Um, last year, they started with a satellite village as well, which is basically how would you hack on a satellite? Is a satellite, a satellite vulnerable? What was interesting was when we went and we, we, uh, we found some of their called goons, which are the leadership really of the, the, uh, DEF CON environment. They're hackers that are super hackers that make sure the hackers play by the rules. Um, go figure that one. But, uh, <laughs> we talked, we talked to a couple of the leading goons and, and their comment was, is that space was too wide open, that you have all these platforms that were launched with no security embedded because nobody thought about it. So, so just like you guys were saying, you know, I didn't really think about cyber and space. N neither did that community. So um, they have proprietary solutions protecting their platforms, but does proprietary equal secure? So um, the possibility to do something crazy is truly there. And we uh, tested that and proved it out in our uh, cyber competition that we hold on an annual basis, which I'll probably talk a little bit more about. But is it doable? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. And is the community trying to figure out what to do next? Uh, yes. The key to me is the workforce that helps them do that. And that's kind of my role in at both the university and then the, the institute is to figure out how to increase the number of people that are cyber cognizant, cyber aware that want to go into space. When I think about cybersecurity, um, I'm a, a coder and a, a hardware engineer in a very uh, low stakes environment. It's my living room, right? Uh, I, I'm a hobbyist. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to worry about security. And anytime that 
uh, security impinges on something I'm doing, instead of uh, right. me designing a solution, I go and find a turnkey solution. I'll run uh, a server on AWS or Google or something uh, and just mm -hmm. let... Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you can you can totally make an a, an absolutely unsecure server on one of those platforms, but you know, I'll tend to to grab a, a turnkey solution and let somebody else handle it. And I feel like I am uh, very much uh, a jack of all trades. Uh, I have ADHD, so I uh, have a broad knowledge of uh, very shallow pools just scattered all over the place. And I feel like uh, for me. Uh, cybersecurity is a little bit inscrutable. It's, it's something that you have to specialize in, in order to be good at it. Now, obviously, I'm never going to be the kind of person who can, um, build a, a, a network, uh, or a satellite that can stand up to, um, high intensity attacks from, uh, governments or, you know, what we're seeing now is basically government-sized agents, right? The uh, organizations that can basically put out as much muscle as any government. Um, I'm never going to be able to stand up to those people. But for people who are looking to go into the industry, what do, what does it actually look like? How can they uh, be sure that they are producing uh, technologies and products that can stand up to uh, the modern uh, cyber attack environment? without being cybersecurity experts themselves. You hinted to it already, uh, which is good on you. But what you said was, I know my limits. You also know developers, as I know developers, who don't know their limits and think that their software code is the best thing since sliced bread. And so that cognizance, that's understanding that I don't know everything and I would have to or I would need to have someone look at this or add a security portfolio over it or something like that, that's really the first step, and that's what we're trying to do is to increase the knowledge in people and organizations that are designing these platforms and putting them out there. The example we use is, uh, well, we used it in a different uh, challenge that we did, but uh, uh, the, the ability of a pacemaker to receive malware in it, that doesn't sound real good. Mm -hmm. And, and so uh, that was a, an identified shortfall at DEF CON upon which the manufacturing community for pacemakers changed the way that they did their software uploads onto the pacemaker. So if you really think about that, you're going, holy moly, you know that. I'm sure somewhere along the line, someone said, what do we do to secure it? And they said, well, nobody will ever get to it. Well, there's these things like supply chain and other ways that you just don't think about the normal entry exit into that, but it's all there. So again, it's about understanding that, you know, you may not have all the answers and if you were to take this code or you take this product and go somewhere with it, um, you know, there's a conscious on the side of the developer that says it doesn't have all the buzzes, bells and whistles for security. And then those who do, uh, so that's where you really begin to specialize. You want those security experts, but, but cybersecurity even starts on the operational IT floor. I mean, there are so many differing levels, and this is part of the challenge with trying to fill that 465,000 is, is that everybody wants the same high-end level person, you know, someone who is specialized, but you don't need that. What you need is someone who understands the differing levels and responsibilities associated with the work mm -hmm. that you're doing. So, so like on our IT operational floor, we have security embedded into the team. So they're almost like deputized engineers who understand that at their level, there is a component of the security 
architecture that they are responsible for. So that added up as a collective, we have a much better portfolio around the university than if we tried to make one person in charge of everything. Mm. Does that help? Yeah, no, no, that's a fantastic answer. So I, I think the, the, the most interesting question that I, uh, wrote while I was preparing for this interview, uh, was are comm satellites just network switches in the sky? Oh, interesting question. Used to be, but they're not going to be in the future. So, so if you look at what, uh, Elon Musk has proposed and others, they're actually creating cloud in the sky. This is where things just get absolutely amazing. So that instead of relaying information through a satellite to another location, terrestrial, the potential would be to do the cloud analysis, cloud, they call it the edge computing in space, which then even greater reduces the lag time to solve an answer. And so basically you could have computerized clouds flying around in space and that would reach just about anywhere on the planet to be useful. So, you know, latency is not a big problem today, but with more data, the latency becomes an issue. But if it's flying over your head, it just changes the dynamic significantly to include the angle that you're looking at the information. So even, even see, this is where it gets really ethereal, right? Even the time it takes to get the question to the platform to answer back can be part of your analysis. So this is where that digital literacy thing really kicks into high gear. All of these components become part of your solution set. Um, the example I used to, I, I like to use about, you know, weird wacko and space and cyber and everything else and data is, you, you know, there's a very serious push to develop a space elevator. Are you familiar with the space elevator mm -hmm. concept? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We laugh at it fairly often. All right. Yeah. So big money going to go down that path. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But <laughs> so, so, I mean, at least I am a, a huge pessimist. So <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and so are the people about Dick Tracy watches on their wrists. So, I mean, to, to, <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that it's not real or nothing. You know, I'm saying it, uh, just think about the amount of data that would be necessary to protect the platform, to run the platform. So mm. again, how do you do all that? Do you connect it to a, a wire? No. So, so again, it's going to be connected to space-based data elements to include, you know, is there a meteor storm? Is there flying debris? All these things become measurables. All these things are data points that are needed to protect, run, serve. So all of those things. So this is an example where it becomes an entire ecosystem of digital data analytics cyber. I mean, can you imagine if somebody hacked the thing? I mean, it just would be horrible, right? So again, um, it creates a whole new response system. And I think the other one that was interesting was um, I was talking to somebody and they said, gee, Bill, I never thought about this before. Uh, that would be pretty bad if somebody hacked a spacecraft that's taking people up just to orbit and see what space looks like and comes back, wouldn't it? I said, yeah, but, but what's the difference now? You've added people to the conversation. Um, when you're talking about platforms and other things and, and moving missions, um, that becomes just as dangerous, scary. Um, so again, uh, it's just kind of a compounding effect. And I think a lot of people think about the danger of hacking as being what can you do once you get your hands on this thing. And so, you know, if you've got a satellite up in space, if you hack it, you know, a lot of people stop at the, well, can I cut, can I bring it crashing into another satellite? Yeah, maybe. But the real danger is the, uh, is the ransom, right? You, if you can yeah, get control of anything, you can hold it for ransom. Yeah. The, people get wrapped around the, the ransom aspect 
It's actually the loss of usability and the loss of data sure. Sure. that then yeah. creates the effect for the ransom. Right. So, so that loss, um, let's say, again, you have a high critical mission system. Uh, you know, like we said, a pacemaker. That's a bad thing if you can hold it from providing data yeah. because then it shuts down. So, again, yeah. th there's all these different angles upon which the loss of data, and we have become so dependent on that data. Um, so, like, if you're doing banking transactions and, and all of a sudden the relay to do that with is gone, People are going to panic. So, uh, do you do you know how much um, computational power people are talking about actually uh, putting up into space? Um, most of, terabytes. Well, well, that that is that storage or computation? Both. So there's a there's a um, as a matter of fact, there's a very heavy push right now. AWS and Verizon have a deal that they're developing edge computing in a 5G signal. So that's just an example today, and that's terrestrial. Imagine that moving to space. Um, and I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but AWS has also created a, uh, what they call a common ground station where they have been able to create, uh, a cloud based command and control center for a multiple commercial spacecraft. Mm. That's pretty cool. That, that is so, actually pretty powerful. So again, yeah. right? So two big limiters, right? For, for a spacecraft is one is the launch. And then the command and control infrastructure necessary to support it. You know, you've got to have relays around the world that you can bounce uh, data uploads to because of the storage capacity. Mm -hmm. So imagine if the launch has now become commercial, which it has, and then the command and control structure becomes commercial. What's the barrier to entry now? Well, it's building the platform, which people are doing left and right all over the place. And everything from, you know, these CubeSats, very small, they look like a, a little larger than a shoebox. And they're part of uh, larger, more significant or, or architectures that are doing calm and potentially compute and, um, you know, geospatial data. I mean, that's very topical. I think in the last week, Leo Labs and LeafSpace both announced, you know, building new ground stations as part of their networks and also using them, just selling them as a service to other mm -hmm. people. Yeah. So, so what we're going to see again here is this, it's kind of back to my conversation, which I, I love. You're making my point. If everything now is this digital connectivity, don't we need to understand that, that whole digital connectivity better, which then drives us to look at the amount of data that we're generating to do this with and we have as measurables. It, so if I, you know, if I lease you my command and control center, I want to know how effective it is, how often, What's the latency? You know, all those things. That's data. We're back to data. And I want to know how secure it is. So now we're back to cybersecurity as well. So we've got the trifecta going. What what makes cybersecurity different um, when you're getting involved in space? Is it is it just that the stakes are higher or are there fundamental challenges to making a space-based platform uh, secure against attacks in a way that Earth-based platforms just don't experience? Uh, so two answers, uh, uh, both sides of the coin. The first one is all the fundamentals are exactly the same. I don't care if you work in space or infrastructure or SCADA. All these things pretty much are the same basics that can be then applied in that new area. And in the new area, you have to look at then the operational scenario around. So what's different is, is say like I'm working on a, a, a damn SCADA system. Uh, <laughs> get it? Damn, skids. Uh, never mind. Um, the, you know, that system I can touch. I can go make changes to it. I can affect it. But once I launch it into orbit, um, there's not a uh, repairman that goes up and fixes the satellite and says, okay, change this piece of hardware or change this circuit. 
So the decisions that you make, you're stuck with when it's on orbit. And so you'd have to wait until a replacement platform goes up. So it's kind of a, a more elongated process for that in the cyber area. And it also then puts a heavier reliance on those digital connections when you make your commands and uploads and other things that they have to be exacting and they cannot be perturbated with anything else. Because, again, once you load it on there, it's on there. Um, how, how much just on the ground, how much uh, how, how many of those operational commands are communicated over the Internet? versus, you know, a, a hardwired computer. It's it's in the server farm and we can go do work at the farm at, you know, a, a computer that's connected to that network on that side of the firewall. Um, is, is this something that we've experienced before, only doing remote commands? Yeah, so that's the predominant history of the, of the entire space world. It's, it's loaded up with proprietary machines owned by the individual that's running and commanding and controlling that platform. And they design their own architectures with their own relays. What we see with the commercialization of space is that, again, they're opening more up to cloud-based, to uh, sharing of resources, outsourcing of the command and control structure, so we're seeing the potential for a dramatic influence or a dramatic increase in the amount of external comp components that go into this commercial space. So, so again, with that, what you'd want to have is a better, longer, deeper understanding of the cyber aspect of the, the whole platform and everything else. And what's interesting is a, a lot of the companies that are building commercial space platforms, their design is proprietary, but there's no secure aspect to it. In other words, Proprietary, proprietary to them means secure. And so no real government standard, no real, unless they built the platform for the government, they're building to their own standard. Mm. Uh, and so what we've seen in all other areas is to feel comfortable, to feel better. We've looked for government to step in and at least provide us with standards on how those things should be built. So the space arena is, is behind on that, just like all the other cyber elements, because a cyber person in space, name one. Do you know anybody that works that? So again, you know, no standards, meaning then it's up to you and your company to figure out what the standard is. Is is that reliable enough? I, I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just posing the question. Do you have any examples of any kind of cybersecurity threats uh, that have actually materialized in space? Like, is there any precedent within the industry that can kind of point people in the right direction? Or is this all still very, very new? Let's see here. Um, the way I'm going to answer that is I, I'm, I can't give you any example because if there were, the government wouldn't allow it and talk about it and the company wouldn't want to talk okay, about it. <laughs> uh, there, there was, um, there was an example that made the public, uh, which was a, uh, a space agency, uh, was doing a, uh, multinational mission and one of the players on that spacecraft was hacked. And it got into the space agency's database. So, so that, um, that was openly talked about. I'm just still hedging on everything I say so I don't get in trouble. Uh, but, but that was an absolute backdoor of the multinational platforms into the main system. So much like with any hack, they look for the weakest link and they go through it and they find out how far they can go in the system. So, so to kind of piggyback on that then, um, in our annual challenge, cyber challenge, this is something the university students build along with tech teams. That's members from industry. Uh, last year's scenario, um, it's called the California Cyber Innovation Challenge. 
Um, that challenge scenario was a commercial satellite that was hacked and brought back to Earth. Um, due to the magic of Hollywood, we were able to get access to the crashed payload. Mm -hmm. And the students in a virtual environment uh, did an autopsy on the payload. They did basic uh, cyber forensics to figure out what had created the problem, um, where did it get hacked, how did it get hacked. And then they went downstream in the networks associated with the platform to figure out had the payload sent any malicious code or malware downstream to be embedded in the other platforms associated with this. So it was an absolutely cool virtual competition. Actually, really amazing stuff. And is that is that the the expectation that we see in the real world that we're going to wind up with um, space uh, assets becoming malware distributors? Or are we more expecting to see that their functions disrupted and, and that being where the, the harm is coming from? Uh, the answer to that one lies in the deceivious minds of the bad guy <laughs> and what they want to do and what havoc they want to wreak. Uh, I would argue that much like we've seen in uh, SCADA devices and, uh, you know, the, the power grids and other things, they're going to get away with what they can get away with. And if they think they can hold your entire system hostage and, you know, hold you, pay the ransom, I believe they'll go that path. So, so the answer is, yeah, we're we're afraid of everything happening because that's the only way to to see I, it. Coming. I thought I did that pretty good, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 you did. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you uh, you touched uh, on the on the competition. Is that uh, CCIC or was that Gen Cyber? Yeah, that's um, CCIC, which is the California Cyber Innovation Challenge. You know, every good project has to have an acronym, right? right? Yeah, of course, yes. Um, and so we started five years ago, or actually almost six years ago now, as a partnership with the state of California. And uh, the first three were actually done in person. Uh, and so, again, this is pre-COVID. Uh, what was cool about those is we used a, 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 what we called um, an, an embedded format, which was basically we built sets, and all these sets were different cyber-based scenarios. So uh, the first year, uh, we did a, a watershed that was poisoned. And uh, as uh, the police were chasing the guy off, he jumped out of his car because he ran out of gas. Not a very smart uh, poisoner. But he, he ran out of gas and, and disappeared. And so the students um, basically did a search and seizure on the vehicles to look for, for digital and physical evidence. The physical I'm sorry, both physical and digital evidence that they found led them to uh, where the individual lived. So they went to the apartment. They did a search seizure there on digital and physical evidence, which then led to his electronic presence. And they, we set up uh, accounts for the, the bad guy. And we had uh, emails. We had uh, threatening data, all this sort of stuff that, again, the students then just participated, moving from location to location, entity to entity, and on a physical and digital level. So it was kind of a, like a, uh, a real game of electronic clue in the 21st century with locations and everything. Um, the second and third year were based around hospital settings. So we literally built a hospital set with uh, an admitting center, um, emergency room, operating room, and the doctor's offices. And again, same thing, physical, digital evidence. Uh, we started then to move to the, uh, the scenario around spacecraft, and uh, that's when uh, COVID hit. So we did a, about a, a six-month uh, change. We went from the physical world that we were working in to a completely virtual and um, probably the best thing we ever did because it exploded. 
uh, in the opportunity. It, it's gotten so big now that uh, we'll be having our challenge in October. We'll probably have around 2,000 students participate because we run it in the cloud. And basically, uh, you can be in the game if you're using a Chromebook because we're having it in a cloud uh, a gaming area and so it's more like a, a game slash learning slash competition in april of 22 the competition will actually go international uh, and we'll be including six other states from the u.s involved so we're expecting almost 10 to 20,000 kids in that one uh, again uh run by our students so they serve as the judges they serve as the you know the panel chiefs and all these other things and it, it's really quite amazing to watch that's really cool do you do you go straight to the schools to enroll folks or is this an individual by individual so this is um we started off uh, using uh california system to help us in this uh, what we found out um, is that the response was mainly from schools who had very strong stem programs and that's not universal across the state of California nor anywhere, really. Uh, and so uh, we began this year in conjunction with our um, annual competition, a program we call Cyber to Schools, which is a combined outreach program. So we're specifically targeting schools to create clubs that at the end of an annual process, the club would then compete in the competition. But the club is uh, a, a STEM-like club. It teaches the three competencies. You may have heard this before of cloud, uh, of uh, digital literacy, and cyber literacy as, as the components for the club. Uh, and what we ask for is since there's not a STEM teacher at that school, we'll ask for a coach from the school, and then we work with industry partners to provide the tech side. So we've built the entire curriculum for that year-long learning process up to competing in the game. Our, our goal is not only just to, to teach and give them the curriculum, but it's really to excite them about the potential mission of not just space, because that's really cool now, but also that cyber component. Um, at our last competition, we you know did this outreach with all the different teams, and I can't tell you the number of times that I heard a team say, I never thought there was cyber in space. And um, absolutely amazing. So again, what we're really trying to do is get get them aware early. So these are middle schools and high schools that are participating. Get them interested. Get getting motivated, and and let them feel like, hey, I can do this too. Now, now as part of the learning experience, uh, because there is an there is a curriculum development for this. When they compete in the competition and they achieve a certain level of success, they receive a digital badge for the success. So uh, what's cool about that is those digital badges are tied to the NICE framework, which is a National Institute for Cyber Education. Those are recognized um, requirements to work in the area of cybersecurity. So here are these kids getting these, these digital badges saying, hey, I've learned these competencies in these areas. And, and it helps them understand that, you know, they can put that on their resume, they can put that on, on LinkedIn, but it's really about them saying, hey, if I've done this, I can go to the next level and get some more work in this, and I can get a job in this. What efforts uh, does CCIC take to make sure that the schools that they're bringing into the program uh, are diverse? Like, how, how are you reaching well, that's, out to... Uh, that's a great question, uh, because that's that's really corollary to the cyber schools program. Most of the schools that we see that do not have STEM programs um, are, are very diverse in, in orientation and just don't have the financial support necessary to, to have that kind of STEM teacher, STEM education. And so we've got two prototype programs right now. I won't mention the school names, but, but both of them 
are very underrepresented communities. And we're really excited because both of the programs are just accelerating. It's like we can't get the curriculum to them fast enough. They just mm. want more and more mm -hmm. and more. And, and they'll be able to compete. And um, what we're trying to do is to show several different governmental agencies that, um, you know, not that the government would ever be wrong, but what we're trying to tell them is, is, hey, you know, this wave the flag thing, hey, come to us. It's, that's not getting their attention anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they need to be motivated on their own level. And so one of the twists that we've added to the competition this year is we've added eSports concept to it. So we have an eSports team at the university, and they're now part of the, the design, manage, run team. So we'll actually have a Twitter channel available that will be running with commentary as mm -hmm. the game is ongoing. And it's very competitive. And, and Again, it's it's all the things that kids of that age like to do and get involved in. So, yeah. so we see it really, you know, picking up even more. Now, the cool part is since we have academics involved, which is, you know, our professors, uh, they're looking at things like learning equivalencies, uh, uh, learning timelines, all those sorts of things as evaluations that they're writing papers about that says, you know, this eSport thing has some connectivity, has mm -hmm. it has a long-term gain to it because the retention from the students yeah. is way higher than in certain areas where there's a lecture learned. So we have a decent number of uh, high school students who listen to the show. If they're interested in doing something like this, what do they have to do to uh, encourage their school to get involved? I would reach out through the website that we gave you, which is the cci.calpoly.edu. Look on there and, and just get in touch with the team. And, uh, you know, we'll send speakers out. Uh, we'll send our team out to see if the, you know, the school that they're at is interested in what the commitment is. I think one of the biggest things that turns people off is, is they get afraid of that word commitment and what it means. And, and in many cases, um, they don't have a, a teacher who is cyber, you know, cognizant, cyber smart or cyber aware. And that word cybersecurity scares them off. So we've actually changed the, the club name. So we recommend that the school creates a club. We call it Innovation Club because mm -hmm. it's really about the three competencies we talked about and how to innovate within those worlds, which then cyber is a major component of it. So what we've seen is a higher positive effect by not calling it cyber training. So, it, it, you know, it, it's an interesting twist, but true. I mean, e even, you know, I, I'm uh, pretty tech literate and when somebody whips out the word cyber i don't i don't know what they mean because it, it's applied to so many different things and it and i honestly exactly. kind of gets on my nerve a little bit so it's really cool to to uh hear a different uh name applied to uh to these clubs because <laughs> it's more descriptive it works yeah. it is more descriptive and again like i said i, I we are seeing that you can't do one without the other two now. So could you tell us about uh, Gen Cyberspace, uh, the, the camp? Is that connected to CCIC? It is. Um, one of the things that we were trying to do is to figure out a way to accelerate the learning curve of desire to participate. Uh, and so what we had done is uh, we actually had intended to do Gen Cyberspace last summer. But uh, again, uh, COVID took that away from us. This year, we'll still be doing it, but part hybrid and part still on the ground. The idea is, again, to reach out to those who did not have access to STEM within their schools and accelerate their desire to have something to get them exposed. Because, you know, um, just like you said, the word cyber has a tendency to turn people off. Um, and so when you say, hey, how'd you like to learn about the cloud? And they're like, I don't want to be in weather. 
So, so again, the key becomes how do you get them to understand how important these three competencies are without saying them, <laughs> you know, more, more like experiencing them. So we created the Gen Cyber and the, the focus is on the underrepresented schools that do not have uh, a strong STEM program to come and experience it enough that the students are saying, Hey, I want this. Um, and so it'll have, uh, the, the program is, uh, this will surprise you. It's focused around understanding digital literacy. It's focused around some aspects of cloud and, and data analytics. And it's also around then the cyber side and space side. So part of the process will be not just learning some of those cyber skills, but also, uh, as part of it, we're going to take them out to Vandenberg, uh, Space Force Base and show them, uh, the museum and walk around systems. And we actually teach door orbital dynamics in the class and everything else. So they're really getting exposed to a lot of components they would not get at the school they're at or, you know, just in general. Okay. So Chris in our chat, uh, asks, uh, how worried are you about, um, the effect that AI is going to have on cybersecurity, uh, in space? Uh, Chris says that he's heard that many cybersecurity types are worried about the implications uh, of AI on traditional institutions like banks, governments, et cetera. Um, how, how does space, especially if, you know, you're getting into edge computing, how is, how are space assets resilient and how are they vulnerable? So, so first of all, do not go back and watch Terminator movies, okay? <laughs> it's not good to do that and then have this discussion. So am I worried? Of course. Um, am I worried for all the same reasons I talked about with space and everything else is how much security architecture is going into design by we're doing the design and we'll figure out the security later. That to me is the major issue. If you design them secure, they tend to work more secure. If you don't design security into the architecture and then you try to overlap it, that's how the bad guy wins because they figure it out before you do. And as you're trying to figure out the security, they've already embedded themselves in your platform. So again, these are really uh, interesting times and AI, AI uh, is also touted just, just for your, uh, for Chris in the listening audience. AI is also touted as one of the saviors of cybersecurity, that AI will see that somebody is doing something nefarious to a system, catch it, and turn it off before it happens. So, you know, AI is being played on both sides of the coin. The, the, the thing I say in response to all of that is that no matter what AI you're using, somebody, a person, will have to check most of those components, either before mm -hmm. it goes in or after or as it's doing its function that person's role becomes more important than ever. And they need to be an expert. They need to be knowledgeable in all those areas I talk about to be successful, to catch the problem as it's occurring. So again, what we have is hopefully a system architecture of checks and balances. There's plenty who don't attend. They're going to, you know, develop the AI response and off it goes, which then you have an AI to check the AI. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think we're getting a bit complicated. So always, always there has to be some competency where the human is involved to check that process to make sure it's doing what you designed it to do and complete the function. Uh, bottom line, my worry. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in security, you have, uh, attackers being, uh, advantaged by the fact that they only have to succeed once and defenders being disadvantaged by the fact that they have to succeed every time. But the, the the well, interest oh go ahead I, let me change that for you yeah let me that that's a great okay um you hit on a, a very old 
paradigm. So today's world is not about being successful every time. Today's paradigm is about limiting the effect of the success, knowing what it is they're attacking and what's most important of you, of your app, your architecture, the crown jewels, whatever it is to protect. So that instead of trying to protect everything simultaneously, it's really about limiting the effect while making sure that your crown jewels are protected. So that's a different paradigm than the old school. Uh, the old school, those security guys, and I know they're still out there, they say no to everything. Uh, you want thumb drives? No, you can't put a thumb drive. No, 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 no. You can't expect, you can't hook up to an external. So they, you know, they're all about the no. The new paradigm that's being taught is really limiting the effect because you're going to get hacked. I don't care who you mm -hmm. are. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much AI you have. You're going to get hacked. If they want you, they will spend their entire life to get you. Therefore, again, what you have to look at really is, is how do I limit the effect that they have on us and how do I ensure that the crown jewels are not affected? Could you give me a practical example uh, of that? Like, what, what does that actually yeah, look absolutely. like? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you the university as an example. So I have 22,000 students who believe it's their job to break the internet on a daily <laughs> basis, right? <laughs> they are really, really smart. There's no security architecture I could put in place to defeat 22,000. So our approach has to be to protect what we can, to limit the amount of damage judge when something is done, but protect the crown jewels, um, PPI, uh, personal information, credit card numbers, you know, the crown jewels of who and what. Those are the things that we spend most of our time focused on. The rest is uh, limit damage, limit effect. So, so it's really about knowing, um, knowing what you need to spend time protecting, uh, rather than being yeah. clever about how you protect it. I see. So th this is, this is sort of a roundabout way to ask more about AI. You mentioned how AI can be used on both ends. And, um, it, it, it seems to me that, um, using AI to detect an attack is, I mean, if it's not our, I would be shocked if it wasn't already in use. Um, because that, that's a, that's a pretty simple thing to do. You give, um, uh, a neural net, a series of inputs, you, you know, you train, Hey, this is good. This is bad. Um, and then you just let it sit and run. Cause the worst that happens is that it gives you uh, a false positive. Um, and so limiting the false positives, uh, so that they're not overwhelming means that it's actually usable, even if it's only usable in a, you know, only alerts on a, a small number of attacks. Um, absolutely. And so the reason I was asking about, um, uh, defensive versus offensive advantages was because it seems like uh um even though the question was about using ai as an attack method it seems like it's actually way more useful as as a defense method um it, does that all ring true to you do you do you have any elaborations yeah, on that front absolutely the community is yeah the community uh, so um i'll give you an, again a university example um AI in its current instantiation is expensive as hell. Um, you know, the, the, the big companies are using it. Uh, others are using it. It's not as predominant as you would hope it is. However, we're moving to that more. So, so the university, we have, uh, focused on specific platforms that are using AI and ML machine learning. The AI, uh, is predicting and the machine learning says, nope, you were wrong that time, but next time we'll be right on the assessment and improves the AI. So what we're seeing is a, com a combined element here, which is really enhancing. 
And then using those two products, we're able to then do cursory reviews, again, the human in the loop, to make sure that all the things that we want are being done the way we want and that uh, we can add new things to it. So if we see or hear of a new attack vector or there's a particular subject that's going around, AI doesn't know what subjects we're talking about, so we have to add it in. Then it becomes part of the machine learning and AI. So again, that human component is still critical. The cool part of that for us, uh, that allows us to use students to run our cyber, our SOC, which is a security operations center. So it's a SOC Lite. Because of AI tools, our students are running the SOC for us. So um, getting back to specifically cybersecurity in space, I, w um, I just want to know exactly what do you think is uh, the biggest threat to cybersecurity uh, that exists within space? What specifically uh, is your biggest concern? Or is it maybe the same as with everything else? Same as everything else. I mean, it's in two specific areas. It's in the, it's in the hardware design. So if we think about hardware design, uh, one of the things our students do here, which is just mind-numbing to me, but our students build uh, CubeSats, and it's the coolest thing I ever saw. So they build them, uh, they, they launch them on other platforms, and they command and control these small sats in space. It's just, it's amazing. In their supply chain, they're buying their circuits and components online from the cheapest bidder. So what kind of component is being built into that? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you have to ask some really tough questions. You know, A, is that a risk to the platform? B, is at a risk to the platform it's attached to for launch? I mean, there are so many questions here that, um, so supply chain and, and how all that ties together, uh, that's a major concern. And then the whole aspect of the command and control, the relay uploading of data, uh, downloading of data, you know, is that secure? Is, is that a risk if? So I think those two areas to me right now are, are really my biggest fears. Um, again, remember most of spacecraft if it wasn't launched in the last two to three years, it's been flying up there for a while. It's probably an analog system with heavy-duty component circuit chips on it that, you know, the software is embedded into the component. So it's locked and loaded. You can't even change it. Was it the right upload? Was it the right security? I mean, is there a, is something insidious on it? We may never know, hopefully, uh, or... Um, it's too late to know. So are, are some of those vulnerabilities, uh, some of the things that the um, cybersecurity maturity model certification is trying to address? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, the supply chain is definitely in the conversation in cybersecurity maturity model uh, design. Uh, let's see, what do they call it? Uh, security by design is part of it, uh, which is a whole nother conversation we could have, which is where your security team is part of your design build as well as then just the acceptance. So at the university, we, we have shifted to having security by design. So uh, we have a DevOps environment. We do a plan, build, run, and security is embedded in each of those categories where they're actually on the design team. We have another on the build team and security and our ops lead are the two sign-offs before a platform can go operational after it's come off the uh, dev. DevNet. So changing the way you do business is the only way we're going to change that in the future. So it's kind of cool because it works. Um, you know, we can still make lots of changes and lots of modifications, but the security team is part of it. And, and again, um, back to the original comment, um, some of those are engineers who are now working as deputized on the security team. So they're representing the security requirements as they're in those different phases. 
So it's really not having to be an expert expert, but you have specific tasks that you're following when you do that. Very interesting. It also speaks to the jack of all trades theme that keeps cropping up. <laughs> Doesn't. <laughs> and well, and the other nice part is, is we see that uh, at least our employees we're, we're motivated because those are uh, additional things that they're learning. It's additional training. It, it, it can lead to additional money. I mean, it's all the right things for motivation uh, and and just uh, some really cool factors associated with it. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say the, the, the design phase and then the uh, relay phase right now to me are the most concerning. But again, that that's my personal opinion from uh, a few years of experience. That there are others who will tell you, not a problem, not a problem. Yeah, sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems that as, you know, people start launching more and more satellites, like you said, you have students building CubeSats. Yep. So that's just more of an opportunity for, for some kind of a security hack of some sort, you know, because we're not talking about yep. big government payloads, which I imagine, like, even if they're not secure, at least there's an incentive to protect them. But for small things, like when you yes. have the Internet of Things in space, that's just a whole nightmare, it seems. Ab well, it could be, right. Absolutely. And again, uh, for our, for your listeners that, you know, are watching T2 in parallel, stop it. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, that could, I mean, why not? I mean, again, it, you know, things out of control, things out of whack create bad issues. We've seen something where once you just connect more things, then you become much more vulnerable to bad actors, right? And like some of the biggest hacks involved like really mundane things. Like didn't, didn't, wasn't the biggest hack ever like people using, um, the default passwords on people's routers, I think. Yep. And they did that for, so, oh yeah, sorry. You just defined digital literacy, mm. understanding how your network connects, works, acts, behaves, and what things you should do to protect it. Man, I love it when you guys make my points for me. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, Bill, uh, our penultimate question uh, is historically, uh, where would you like to be found on the Internet? Sure. The, through the CCI is an awesome place. Uh, we provided, I think you all have the link for that one. And then LinkedIn. I'm, I'm definitely out there on LinkedIn and uh, do respond to everybody that uh, sends me a question or anything else there. So feel free to reach out. Yeah, that's a good secure answer, I would say. <laughs> not not that they can't I, find your email, I'm, I'm sure, but you know. See, I practice digital literacy, even in an answer. That's pretty mm -hmm. darn good. <laughs> Consistency. Consistency. Yeah, so the last question is, uh, if you could take one object with you into space, what would that be? Um, you know, I, I'm going to be really uh, strategic about this. I'm going to take a Mars candy bar with me. Okay, so hang on. I'm, I'm trying to log in. Uh, Bill at cci.com. The password is Mars Bar. No, it didn't work. Yeah, try it. <laughs> you, you'll be there aware on that one. That, that one won't work. So we'll just give that away right away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, great. Thank you for spending this this uh, hour and a half with us. Good Lord. Uh, it, it's been fantastic yeah, to uh, hear your perspective and um, uh, learn some new things about cybersecurity. Gentlemen, it's been awesome. I really appreciate it. Uh, glad we could spend this time together, and I'm going to make you jealous. I'm going to head out to the pool now and jump in and just do nothing. 
So, this week in Spaceflight History, we have one winner, the Greek. Uh, So, the clue was Hope Floats, and he actually had a better clue, uh, which was, this might have been a bit of a giveaway. So, you could say that Hope Floats, and that was my clue, Hope Floats, but you could also say it is uh, perpetually falling, which I think is also good. So, Hope Floats or Uh. is perpetually falling, but that right there tells you that we're talking about something in orbit. So, last week, uh, I think that Dennis, his uh, This Week in Spaceflight History. Yeah, Nozomi. Yeah, that was about Nozomi, which is Japanese for hope. But as it turns out, uh, <laughs> Kibo, that too means hope in Japanese. So we're talking about the launch of the Kibo Exposed Facility. Now, I don't know what the difference in meaning is. I'm sure that there's some semantic difference there. I don't know if you know, Dennis, like what you know the difference between Kibo they, and Nozomi is. I mean, they, they share a, a character, uh, you know, a Chinese character together. And so, but yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, they're just kind of... Synonyms. I'm not sure of the, any new nuance between the two, but okay. admittedly, I don't know that Japanese that well. <laughs> yeah. So the launch of Kibo, the first part of which was launched on STS-127. So that's what we're talking about, and that was on July 15th, 2009. Um, one interesting fact, and these are just like one of these cool precedents that I that you don't realize, you don't know until you hear it, and then you go, "Hey, that's cool." Is that this was the first Japanese human-rated space facility? So this was the first thing that was ever launched by Japan that you could put a person inside of. Which, when you think about it, what else would there have been? But I never thought about it. So, like, this was a, you know, a huge milestone, really, for Japan, for JAXA in particular. And, of course, this was their first contribution to the ISS. And we're going to talk about exactly how it was launched because it actually went up on three separate launches. Um, Although there are six major components to Kibo, which I think sort of functions, like, the more I read about it, it sort of functions like its own little space station. It's not quite complete as a space station. It does need to remain attached to ISS. But it's actually, you know, it just kind of does a lot of its own stuff. Like it's quite independent. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have the U.S. segment, you have the Russian segment, and then you sort of have the Japanese segment. <laughs> no one thinks of it that way, but that is kind of what's sure, going sure. on. It's got its own arm, its own uh, science experiments, its own storage module. Yeah. The only thing that it doesn't have is I don't believe it has solar panels because it does get its power from you know the U.S. section. So mm-hmm. that's the only mm-hmm. thing is that it can't generate electricity. Um, mm. But other than that, pretty much all the other systems that are necessary, it does have on board. The air, the power, the data, and the cooling fluid are provided by the U.S. segment. So there are six major components to Kibo. Uh, the first one is the pressurized module. This is sort of like the main section, which if you think of the International Space Station and you're sort of thinking of it coming forward at you, the first thing that you'll see is actually Kibo, and it points to the port side. And then on top of that, you have another component, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, that first part is actually the pressurized module. Now, that was actually not the first thing launched. So this brings up an interesting question as to, you know, exactly how they did this if you're launching something else which does not attach directly to the station and specifically the Harmony module uh, node 2. But yeah, we'll talk about the pressurized module first. Um, that is probably the biggest and most important part, or at least as far as the pressurized section goes. <laughs> to, to the to the meat-based humans on the inside, yes. It's very much the most yes. important part. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the most important as far as science goes, but it is the most important thing for people. Yeah, so that was launched on May 31st of 2008, and that was launched on STS-124. So this is not the launch that we're talking about because, you know, this actually came later. The pressurized module holds 23 international standard payload racks. Um, and these racks are pretty cool. Um, I never looked at them closely, and I didn't even know that there was an international standard for things that you experiment with 
deployed in space. So 11 of them are actually just for systems onboard Kibo, which is also called the Japanese Experiment Module or GEM. So um, yeah, we can call it that as well. So if, if you have 11 racks for that, then that means that the other 12 are the only things that you can use for payload. Uh, but still, you know, that actually leaves quite a few open ones. So you have on the four interior walls of the pressurized module, on three of those walls, you have six racks. And then on the other one, you have just five. And I assume that that's probably because that's where the other module attaches to, um, which again, we'll talk about in just a second. So they're kind of cool. They're kind of like little mini fridge shaped things uh, that you can just, you know, pretty easily pop out. Um, I'm sure we've talked about these quite a bit in the past. Um, and I'm not focusing too much on the science itself that's being done, but like more so on the actual Kibo module itself or all of its various components. But yeah, they're very modular, which is a pretty cool thing. I really like that, but I guess that's why, you know, it's a, you know, international standard. It has a small airlock, which as we all know, which uh, kind of, you know, has this little sliding table that you can slide ah. things through. And of course, you cannot put people in it. Maybe, maybe you can put a person <laughs> inside of it. I don't know, but you obviously cannot put a person inside you could, there. You could put a you person a child in there, out but there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you could send a small person, but not a spacesuit. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So if you're going to just, you know, space someone, <laughs> as they say on the expanse, then <laughs> I guess if you're going to make them walk the plank, if there's a mutiny on the station, <laughs> then... It has a little sliding table. That totally works out. I really wish that Sandra Bullock would have used that airlock in gravity at some point. It would have been really cool <laughs> if like there was some, I mean, the, the whole thing was very, um, like invented disaster kind of thing. But like if they could have mm. invented a, a one task that she had to do to, to get something outside, you know, just, just for later, she didn't have enough time. So she put it out now and then be able to go and grab it. I don't know. <laughs> it would have been pretty cool to, <laughs> to have seen that feature. Yeah. And I think I told you guys before, but like it was one of the best movie experiences I ever had because I watched it on the smallest screen possible, but it was on an airplane. <laughs> And so I was digging my hands into like, as it's spinning, I'm like, I'm basically getting vertigo in my, in my seat. Like it, it was just such Jeez. a trick to watch it. All right. So, um, the pressure module has two common birthing mechanisms. Um, one is active and one's passive. The passive side, that's what attaches to harmony. The active one that they have on the side of the module, that's what connects to the experiment logistics module. But let's talk about the system components. There are first critical systems, which have a first and second string redundancy. So basically what that means is the things that are necessary to keep the module in operation, those things are all operating both strings at the same time. And if one of them goes down, you can just rely on one, but you know, it's best to have the other one back up again. So we're talking about uh, command and data handling, the EPS, the electrical power systems, the communications and tracking, the thermal control systems, uh, and the environmental control and, and life support, the EQLIS. So those are the things that have redundancy. Uh, the oh. things that do not, that are not quite as critical, are the experiment support system, the crew support system, which is, again, not to be confused with life support. So we're just talking about things like handrails and lighting and stuff like that. And then there's the actual structure itself, which I don't know how you could do a backup of that. Right. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's the mechanical systems on board. So yeah, talking about the experiment logistics module, 
pressurize a section because there are actually two components which are not directly in contact with one another. So you kind of have to make sure that you keep these in your mind um, and keep them separated. The experiment logistics module section that is actually pressurized, that's what attaches to the pressure module, which is, you know, sort of like the main chunk of the Kibo module or, you know, the Kibo section of station. So that's actually what was launched first. This module was launched on March 11th, 2008 on STS-123. Um, and this is kind of like a smaller version of the main pressure module. This can hold eight of those payload racks. This was actually attached to Harmony temporarily. Now, I don't know if it was actually birthed, but I assume that it was. I couldn't find any photos of that because uh, I don't know how else you would attach it. And I don't, I don't think it was, you know, like, you know, tied on um, in any way. So right. they actually had this docked with Harmony or I guess like birthed with Harmony. Then about like a month later, that's when you had the pressure module brought up and then you attached that instead. So they had to, you know, do some swapping out of the various pressure vessels there. Now, this only has a, a one-string subsystem, so there's actually no backup there. So if things go down there, they're just kind of down. But for the most part, it actually just relies on the pressure module. So um, most of the subsystems are pretty safe there. Just to jump in real quick, I'm I'm pretty sure the the pressurized section was docked straight onto Harmony. Yeah, I got an image yeah. of it, a little schematic. I mean, that's kind of what I assumed. So I'm, perhaps I didn't look that hard because I, you know, I don't know what else they would have done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's got it's got a CBM. I mean, it's it's the same common birthing mechanism. Right. And again, Harmony does have the active side and the logistics module has a passive side. But yeah, this module is mostly just used uh, for stowage of tools and spare parts and things like that. So you could like swap stuff out from that module and the primary pressure module. And yeah, it's like a little bit smaller, I guess. You know, that's why it's called a logistics module is that you just kind of mm-hmm. use it to hold things like while you're doing other things. I don't know quite how you define logistics when it comes to <laughs> how you name modules, um, but mm-hmm. it kind of, you know, fills a role in that sure. capacity. You know, it just kind of makes things more practical. Yeah, I feel like if, if you ever watch any um, videos of astronauts giving a tour of the ISS, whenever mm-hmm. they get there, they're just like, yeah, we just store stuff up here. And then they continue to show you the windows on you mm-hmm. know, and the rest yeah. of the module. <laughs> uh, yeah. So right. that's just kind of where they keep stuff. Yep. <laughs> the other experiment logistics module, which again is a separate thing, is actually the external section. This is an interesting little piece. Um, it is no longer on station. This was an exposed to space external section, and that was launched in July of 2009. And that's actually what this event is, you know, specifically regarding because um, that marks the completion of Kibo. And that was launched on STS-127. It kind of filled the same function as the pressurized logistics module, except for things that didn't need to be pressurized. So we all know that Kibo has uh, the exposed facility. That's where you do all your experiments that have to be exposed to space. And this kind of, you know, provided a little platform like where you could swap things out that you didn't need to have on the primary section. Plus, you could detach the whole thing and you could stick it in a space shuttle and then bring it back to Earth because it has these cool little like mounting points, which are called trunnions. I guess that's a technical term. Um, and you use those to mount it inside the shuttle bay. You don't use the word trunnion in everyday speech? No, I don't use trunnion in everyday speech. I've, I've never even heard the word, to be honest. Or maybe I have, but oh, really? I, 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 I can't it. imagine that you've been doing this show for as long as you have and not heard the word trunnion. Have you ever said trunnion? I don't. Yes. Okay. I, I would be shocked if I hadn't. Well, there's no way to search that, but I would be interested to know if you've ever said trunnion. I guess so. Maybe it's just one of those words that I just kind of breezed over like, okay, that means something obscure. But so what is a trunnion? Is that just what you use to, you know, is it kind of like a little pin and socket system that you use to attach things? Like 
what is the actual definition of trunnion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's almost exactly like I'm not. Let me see. Okay, so the actual definition is a pin or pivot forming one of a pair on which something is supported. So yeah, it's a mounting point. And I'm trying to think. There's a famous trunnion on the Apollo CSM uh, that they like that that I've heard referred to, and like I've you know looked at diagrams of, and I can't remember exactly. But yeah, yeah, that, that's basically what it is. Mike nailed it. The two optic axes, so the um, the optical telescope for sighting stars and um, figuring out what direction you're pointing in, the two axes are called shaft and trunnion, um, and that 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 is precisely what was in my head. Thank you. Good job. It does seem like a word that I should know now. <laughs> it's it's better than the. It's better than the word clevis, and clevis is a very good word, or clevis. Never heard of that word either. Oh no, that's that's another good one. It it's one of those things like um, uh, an aglet is uh, something yeah, that well, keeps I'm... cable from fraying. Yeah, yeah. Like you know mm-hmm. what an aglet is, but it's like an aglet. How else would you describe it? Like there's no good word except for aglet. Trunnion and clevis or clevis are are similar words where it's like it describes a very particular thing and like it's got it's got a word you can use that word just for the people who uh don't know what a clevis is and are going nuts right now um it's it's a another type of fastener and you've seen a million of them um it's like a y-shaped connector with a pin that goes across the the arms of the y and so that that pin entraps something else so that it's a a connection that mm. can bend. Yeah, they're, they're used in a million different applications, but basically anytime you have an arm that connects to another arm, there's going to be a clevis there. Sounds like Cletus. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that sounds kind of like a name or something, Cletus. Yep. So now we can talk about the exposed facility itself. And again, this is, you know, probably the thing that most people are familiar with. That section is also called the terrace. And uh, that has 12 units on board, which is how you do your experiments. You can put your payload in there. They attach the uh, uh, the orbital replacement units, right? And this is another term that I, I know I've heard, but I never really thought about exactly what that meant, the orbital replacement units. So th- these are components that can be swapped out fairly easily, usually by using the remote manipulator system. And if not, then you might have to do an EBA. Um, it just kind of depends. As far as stuff that's out on the terrace, the orbital replacement units could mostly be done by using the Kibos remote manipulator system. And of course, you can put stuff through the airlock, take it out with that. You know, it's just this whole, it's just so cool that you can do experiments in space space not on board the station in space but actually in space and you have a whole system that's in Mm -hmm. place to put things in and out of an airlock so as far as the arm goes right um it's it's actually made up of two arms which i didn't know um Mm -hmm. the primary one is actually 10 meters long and then you have a small or what's called the small fine arm which is a small and i guess it you know performs these very fine maneuvers that one is two meters long and that one sits at the end of the 10 meter length arm and it has like various types of end effectors that you can do things with and that's kind of what that's for so it's kind of like maybe a much simpler version of what's his name like dexter um it doesn't Uh, look anything like that but that's kind of how i think about it same function yeah yeah like a, a little mini Dexter on this little mini space station. So communication, uh, this I did not know at all about Kibo. Um, but again, going back to what makes it kind of like its own little space station, the inter-orbit communication system. What's interesting about Kibo is that it actually communicated with ground directly. Um, it did not go through like any of the systems on board the ISS, although it does do that now. But at first, it actually communicated with ground control via a satellite, which was called Kodama, which I'm guessing means Echo. I don't actually know. 
know, but I looked up the Japanese the best that I could, and I think that that's what it means, or at least that's what would be the most appropriate name for, you know, a data and tracking relay satellite. This satellite was, I guess, kind of like a Pathfinder type of a mission. This was Japan's only tracking and data relay satellite. It operated from 2008 to 2017, and then at that point, it was decommissioned. So this is how they communicated with Mission Control, which was in uh, Tsukuba, which I assume is a city in Japan. I'm actually not familiar with that one. Scuba's their... Um, Scuba, yeah. Yeah, th- that's that's their uh, control center. But usually I just hear, you know, like JAXA and Mission Control. I, I don't I don't remember anyone ever saying Tsukuba. Yeah, I'm, yeah, it's a different center in Scuba. Okay, it's a different center, okay. Oh. It's just, it's not that far from Tokyo. Uh, from Tokyo. Okay, so just outside but Tokyo. But yeah, I, I hadn't heard of Tsukuba either. So inside the pressure module, that's where you, you know, have the communication module like mounted in there. And then on the external section, that's where you had the antenna. And once the satellite was decommissioned in, in 2017, they switched to using TDRS. So they basically, you oh. know, just use the same thing the station uses. What? So they use TDRS, but through their own transmitter, not through the, the station transmitter? That's kind of cool. Interesting. So they it's actually a secondary backup or a secondary system to communicate with Tidra. So yeah, they they totally can or at least until they got rid of the antenna. I love how if you if you pay attention, you can always learn something new. And like when I saw this mm-hmm. topic come up, I was like, "I got this." Like I've talked about Kibo so many times. <laughs> like I'm good and I totally had no idea about this um, this communication string that they had set up for years. That's that's very cool. Yeah, it, and it, it can be difficult to keep track of what goes where. So the thing that I kind of just got wrong, and even though I looked at the graphic and I saw it, so it's not like I didn't see this prior, but the inter-orbit communication system, that was attached to uh, the main section of the exposed facility, not mm-hmm. the logistics module part, which, you know, again, was actually brought back after the shuttle, or was brought back, I guess, on maybe like one of the last shuttle missions. Yeah, there, weren't, there weren't too many after 127, so yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of disappointing, though, that, that they couldn't bring it back and send it back up, you know, like multiple times. But uh, mm-hmm. presumably that would have happened had they not retired the shuttle so early. It could probably fit in a in a dragon trunk or something similar. I mean, obviously, the mounting points, the, the trunnions would have to be altered. But I bet I bet. If they wanted to put something else up there, something large, they could easily do that. Yeah, so that's Kibo or Kibo with a long O at the end. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. That was a phenomenal, uh, uh, you know, touching on uh, Kibo and the many different modules and things that are going on there, as well as how it communicates the ground was very, very interesting. Yeah. Always nice to learn something new with these. Uh, and yeah, and continuing our, uh, I guess that was week two of the uh, hope theme. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Ben is going to snap that streak or not. Uh, you'll let us know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so next next week is uh, the 20th through the 26th of July. And so Ben, you got a clue for us? Yes, next week in 1962. Uh, the clue's a little bit of a joke, and uh, I, I was kind of thinking about trying to get a call and answer going here, but I'll I'll just <laughs> do the whole thing because it's gonna be bad. All right, 1962. Uh, the clue is where do pirates go to drink? An R bar. An R bar. Okay. That is fantastic, and I am. This might be the first time I've ever actually known the clue just by reading it and I, I know what you're referencing with that and that's Se- second time surely maybe even third yeah <laughs> i think you knew one not too long ago actually all right well maybe my second time but yeah that is fantastic i love that kind of, <laughs> thank that kind you of, 
uh, joke clues are the best clues. Okay, well, if you think you uh, know the answer to that clue, uh, then, uh, again, that's next week in 1962, um, where the pirates go to drink in our bar. Uh, if you think you know the answer to that clue, give us a uh, an email or uh, tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, let's move on to upcoming space flight events. Just one launch, that's it. But it's a really cool one, a very important Yay. one, one that we've been waiting for for, like, what, over a decade? Yeah. <laughs> or more? Yeah. So this is... The Nauka module. It's the, uh, the newest ISS module and, uh, presumably the last ISS module to get added. Um, so it's, it's called the, the full name is the Nauka multi-purpose laboratory module. I'm assuming it'll just be referred to as, uh, MLM for, uh, most technical purposes. Um, but it's going to be launching on top of a proton, which like, we haven't seen a proton launch in like a year or something, right? Oh, I'm so excited. So it's going to be flying out of Baikonur on uh, Wednesday, the 21st. So it's after our next show comes out. Um, and, and that's okay. We're going to give you a nice big heads up. Um, if you're in the U.S., it's uh, going to be a fantastic uh, time. Of day. Actually, U.S. and Europe are going to be uh, middle of the day to watch it. Um, so it's going to launch at 1458 UTC. It's got an instantaneous launch window. So again, that's Wednesday, the 21st. Um, and if you're in the U.S., it's uh, 1030 a.m., 1058 a.m. Eastern time. Um, 1030 a.m. is when uh, NASA TV is going to start the coverage. That's probably going to be the best place uh, to watch this launch. Um, and I... I am, I'm tickled pink. I'm thrilled. We've been waiting for it for like a decade. <laughs> and, um, now it's been delayed over and over and over. And we've been watching it get bumped forward and forward and forward. And it's always been just out of reach for including on upcoming space flight events. <laughs> so I, I couldn't be more thrilled. Um, I'm going to have like 12 different alarms going off the morning <laughs> of Wednesday <laughs> to make sure I can sit and watch it. I'm very excited. All right. So, uh, cool. so that is your one upcoming space flight event. All right. So with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at the Orbital mechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links for orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbital mechanics.com all right that's all and we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you see you